Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with James Wilt about how alcohol corporations have caused and profited from a health crisis related to drinking. James Wilt is a freelance journalist, PhD student and the author of two books. Firstly, Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber and Elon Musk, which was published in 2020. And more recently, Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy, which was published by Repeater Books in the summer of last year. In this discussion, I ask James how capitalist accumulation and expansion has caused a health crisis that disproportionately affects working class, racialized and colonized communities internationally. We discuss how the left needs to balance the complex harms caused by the corporate alcohol industry with people's real desire for collective pleasure. I also ask him what the increasing monopolisation of the alcohol industry tells us about drug policy at a time when many consciousness-altering drugs are becoming legal. I'd like to ask that if you enjoy this episode, you consider going over to the website at www.redmedicine.xyz and signing up for a £1 a month donation to help support the cost of running the podcast. And if you can't afford that, but would still like to support the podcast, you can give us a five-star review or share this episode on social media. In your research, in in this recent book, you're arguing that the patterns of alcohol consumption and the subsequent outcomes constitute a a global health crisis um, and one that we're kind of especially like failing to register on the left and more broadly in society. And you're also arguing that not only is this crisis just a kind of naturally occurring thing, it's, it's directly linked to the private market and the capitalist mode of production that's produced it. So there's a lot we can talk about, but I wanted to start by kind of asking you to sketch out why we should consider the scale and intensity of alcohol consumption as a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a great starting point. Um, I mean, for for beginners, obviously, humans have produced, used, enjoyed alcohol for 
um, centuries for thousands of years. Um, so uh, alcohol use and its various impacts is not like a new phenomenon. And that's something that I t- try to stress in, in the book. It's It's been something that has been um, debated and regulated and enforced and, and all the rest of it um, throughout that that entire time through many different um, means and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so it is, it is a, it's an old, it's a very old ancient conversation. Um, but I think also in the present context, as you say, um, due to the immense capitalist ownership and control um, of the market, we're now, I, w- I would argue, in, in quite a different phase. So yeah, just just to begin sort of with the overview and with the stats, and before I say any of this, just just to stress that this is not a case for prohibition. <laughs> I just really want to start, start <laughs> off. I just really want to start off with that. Um, it's more about, you know, whether we think about um, COVID-19 or any n- number of other public health um, issues or crises. It's just about fully understanding and, and accounting for the impacts. Um, and then the policy decisions um, and demands that come from that have to be ensured to be, you know, just and and uh, all those sorts of things. So just just as a as a preliminary disclaimer. But uh, yeah, the, the WHO has a, a regular report on the impacts um, of alcohol at, at the global scale. And the last report estimated that between 2.8 and 3 million people die each year from alcohol-related harms. So one of the the specifically interesting things um, about alcohol is just how many different types of harms um, that can encompass. Um, so I, I break it down in the book following some, some public health scholars that you've got acute intoxication-related harms. So that's car crashes resulting from drunk driving, falls, poisonings, or, or overdoses, um, those sorts of things. And then you've got chronic diseases. So so, you know, obviously you, th- you think of cirrhosis, um, but heart heart disease um, or, you know, more more recently, there's been a lot of conversation around the, the seven types of cancers related to alcohol. Um, so you've got the chronic diseases um, and then you've got um, alcohol use disorders, which is to do with dependency. Um, and of course, all these three categories, which um, aren't, you know, pure distinct categories, they, uh, they intersect um, constantly in terms of one's own um, usage. Uh, and so people who may have an alcohol use disorder of some severity uh, will be more at risk of uh, an acute intoxication-related harm or chronic disease um, over the course of a lifetime. So so that like at a very general level, um, that's um, sort of the, the uh, public health crisis. Um, what we've seen throughout COVID-19, for example, at least in Canada, where I'm based in, in the U.S., is that we've seen alcohol-related deaths um, spiking. Um, and so, you know, of course, we're, we're heavily focused on um, COVID-19, as we should be, and, and many other crises. Like in Canada, there's a um, criminalized drug poisoning um, crisis, especially in BC. Thousands of people have been dying. Um, and so there's a lot of attention, and rightfully so, on these. Um, but there's also this, this parallel crisis, um, which I argue has had less attention paid to it for a whole bunch of different reasons, but it really is compounding and increasing. And I think, you know, the case that I make in in the book is that um, we really need to examine this from a left perspective, from a criticalist perspective, and again, not from a prohibitionist perspective um, about thinking about what a a progressive alternative might look like. Yeah, you touched on it well there, that it's not a kind of moralizing quest, you know, and we'll, and we'll, We'll come back to that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I, I think around alcohol that's really tricky is through the murkiness of most people's consumption of nutritional information mm-hmm. and the research around alcohol, but then also the way people make sense of their own relationship to it is that there is a question of how 
how bad for you that you know but you know what impacts different levels of alcohol consumption have on people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about what research recent research is suggesting is the severity of consumption of alcohol because a lot of people find it difficult to you know make sense of how bad for you it, you know it might mm-hmm. be especially because mm-hmm. it's legal and it's normalized in so many ways could of you course. talk about that a little bit yeah absolutely um and it, it is very complex right um and this is something that industry and it's as boosters have used for a very long time to um, sort of mystify or downplay um, its impacts the same way that um, tobacco has the same way that arguably different industries such as fossil fuels have obviously different situations but nevertheless um, you know one's own risk factors can include a multitude of different things um, whether it be age or genetics or gender or um, you know any any number of things and so those are obvious uh, often framed as um, ways that uh, are complicating um uh, it's uh, or whatnot, um, but it is actually really interesting timing to to <laughs> to be having this conversation and to be asking this um, because just last week uh, a Canadian organization um, released a new set of guidelines um, for the for the country um, low risk drinking guidelines um, and these are sort of the um, parameters which a number of countries are establishing um, in terms of what it may look like for for people to have a intake which reduces their risk levels to to certain levels again with the caveat that risk levels are are really complex um and there's still a lot of like scientific work being done around them so so the uk um in 2016 had their own low risk drinking guidelines um and their estimation was about 14 units per week which works out to about seven drinks per week um standard drinks and units (laughs) themselves very complex that's sort of been the the universal um, sort of gold standard, um, and I refer to that in the book. Um, but what these new Canadian guidelines have suggested is, um, especially when cancer risk is accounted for, it's actually far lower. And so the the new definition, which has been established for low risk drinking in Canada, is two standard drinks a week. And so that's two bottles of five percent beer, two relatively small glasses of wine. And they talk about a continuum of risk. So as your drinking level increases between three and six, you have moderate risk. Um, and then seven and over, it's higher and um, increasing levels uh, of of risk. Um, so I know I'm using the, the, the word risk a lot here, but this is this is really how it's framed because it is a very dynamic um, interaction. Like you'll hear anecdotes of people being like, oh yeah, my 85-year-old grandparents drank consistently for their entire lives and they and they never had any issues right but then you'll have other people who die much younger than than they otherwise would so it it is it is really um complex again um but the science is increasingly indicating especially when cancer risk is accounted for that what we conceive of as um genuinely low risk drinking which i think you know should be an agreement for people who are interested in harm reduction um, is quite low. Um, so at this point, it's sort of between two and six drinks a week in terms of the Canadian standards would be dubbed low risk or moderate risk. Um, so um, that's sort of where things are at in, in the situation in Canada. And of course, now that you know this Canadian organization's put this out, um, other countries such as the UK um, are now responding to it in various ways, um, including you know UK alcohol lobby groups kind of pointing to Canada as an extreme case, saying like this is you know far beyond what we need to be talking about, sort of thing, right? So it's a very dynamic um, situation, but that's sort of like the the broad overview. 
Yeah, and we'll come back to this, but the reason why I thought we'd start there is because, as you say, there's a balance to be struck and it's a balance you strike in the book between the severity of alcohol as a substance, how it's produced as a commodity, kind of socially, historically, whatever, and that that balance between taking it seriously and, and not kind of going in a moralistic yeah. um kind of prohibitive direction and i guess for sure we'll get on to kind of historicizing that and i think that offers a way out of that way of thinking but before we do i guess the reason why one of the reasons why it's so important is because the harms are not evenly distributed as is the case Definitely. with you know most harms in society they're mm-hmm. entangled with all these different systems and conditions or whatever one way to maybe start thinking about that we, it is something that I hadn't heard about before your book was the alcohol harm paradox. Yeah. Could you explain to me what that is and totally how it makes sense of how harm is distributed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I mentioned like the many various risk factors um, and the alcohol harm paradox relates to um, socioeconomic status as we want to conceptualize that. So that can include, you know, income, housing, um, access to healthcare, all these sorts of things. Um, and probably unsurprisingly to most of your listeners, um, the alcohol harm paradox shows that people who are um, in lower socioeconomic status brackets or, or whatnot um, are far more at risk of um, alcohol-related harms. Um, and this this is true even when they drink the same or even less um, quantity uh, of alcohol as as other um, people in higher uh, socioeconomic um, situations. And there's there's been like increasing study um, of this over the past couple of years, and it is like really quite rigorous. And so this, this, uh, this obviously has pretty big implications for how we conceive of um, what harm reduction um, might might actually mean when that's properly accounted for, because as you say, these these risks are not evenly distributed. Um, so you you may be affluent, you may have um, access to healthcare through insurance or, or a national um, healthcare system. Um, you may be able to catch an Uber after um, you know a night out drinking, as opposed to walking along the the side of the road, or God forbid, you know, drunk driving or or, or whatnot. Um, and so all these things like intersect in a, in a very um, serious way to expose um, people who are already uh, in more precarious situations to diseases, injuries, and even death. Um, and so that's that's something that has to be taken um, incredibly seriously. And and when you do hear the industry and its boosters um, sort of downplay uh, risk levels or or you know speak to the complexity of it, I think that really does need to be interpreted as sort of undermining the health and the well being of people in poverty, people who are poor. Um, for the sake of the industry's profits. The last thing I'll say is that like at a global level, which I try to really stress throughout the book, it is itself a complicated situation because people who are um, richer uh, in richer countries, like imperialist countries, um, tend to um, drink more because they have access to disposable income. And so that's kind of skewed the way that a lot of our understandings of healthcare impacts have played out. But uh, we can talk about this later. But, you know, one response to uh, to alcohol companies um, just having surplus that they want to invest and create more profits from as well as healthcare regulations or restrictions coming in in richer countries is to essentially uh, offshore production to poorer, um, to oppressed nations, right? Um, and so so that comes with um, many different, you know, worse outcomes. So it's, it's sort of the alcohol harm paradox, which has been mostly studied in the case of richer countries. Um, sort of uh, extended to the global level, um, which which brings in many, many other different issues, of course, which we can get into later, if you like. 
Yeah, and I suppose one other aspect of when we think about harm as well, it, I mean, it's hard to track because, it, as you say, alcohol-related harms are quite complex and kind of multidimensional in that they are both bodily, psychic, social, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the next question asked could you know could be a whole episode in and of itself. But could you briefly just touch on how um, alcohol consumption is entangled with kind of other intensifications of kind of capitalist consumption? So I guess the two that would spring to mind for me most apparently would be the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. and the kind of predatory policing that comes with the state and worsening um, working and living conditions essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, alcohol obviously has so many use values to people, and that's something I sort of start off talking about uh, in the book. So you got like the relaxation, the sociability. You've got just like the aesthetic pleasure, the the taste, the 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 feeling, the atmosphere. But you've also got like the self medication, right? Like so, for people who experience like the daily brunt of racism and misogyny and colonization and, and all of these things, like it it becomes like a very real way of coping day to day. And so, you know, to the question, like I'm, I'm speaking in the context of of Canada and, and North America, um, you know, what white settler colonies, which um, were like dispossession of indigenous peoples, is like very central um, to like the ongoing like um, capitalist order here. But this is like it, it becomes very, very acute um, in terms of people who continue to suffer um, the outcomes of settler colonialism and dispossession, resort to alcohol and other substances um, just to get by. And and the the response of of the state and of police and prisons um, to to that is uh, is to really violently incarcerate, um, even kill in some instances. Um, when these contradictions uh, manifest in, in especially in like the public uh, sphere or whatever, and so you know we we like in the in the U.S. Um, but also in Canada and, and many other countries, I'm sure like uh, one of the leading causes of police interactions is traffic stops, um, right? Um, and so that can lead to profiling of all sorts, which includes um, charges for DUIs. And this is like a really, I, I'm going to just keep saying that things are complicated, but um, <laughs> but like we we know that um, Black, Latino, um, Indigenous people are are charged and convicted of things like DUIs at a far higher rate um, than, than white people. And this also has direct implications for people who are undocumented migrants. Um, and so there's a stat, which I mentioned in the book, that I think six or seven percent of ICE deportation orders um, included a DUI. Um, and so like, obviously, that, that's like a that's a very specific um, sort of um, situation. But I do think it like it speaks to that previous question of how unevenly um, these these risks are distributed. And the way that this can become so self-reinforcing. So someone gets incarcerated, like an incredibly traumatic situation where you are separated from your family, from your community, you are facing loss of employment, housing, all these things. And so both inside and outside, like whenever you get released, alcohol is is something that you um, resort to, 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 to deal with that because there's like, there's really nothing else. And at least in Canada, and I'm sure elsewhere, like uh, bail and probation conditions often include prohibitions on alcohol use. And so that just becomes like another way that people can continually be re like just um, repositioned like and uh, forced back into to the system. And it just becomes a self-reinforcing compounding um, loop, which we see the manifestations of like constantly. And the yeah, and the way these crises are talked about is is just like not at a 
political economic level it's not thinking these through it's just like well the only response is to continue to police and to incarcerate right um there's no there's no other option and uh the last thing i'll just say about this is that i i do think that and i think it's chapter four of the book like talks about just like the way that alcohol has been racialized in north america but like my my argument is that like alcohol companies these these multinationals benefit enormously from the way that individual uh, or like the alcohol use gets individualized and racialized. It's not something that they like set out um, necessarily to harness or, or, or to create, but they harness it um, very effectively because it means that they do not have the responsibility for the outcomes um, that happen. So, um, yeah. The overriding discourse surrounding alcohol and generally discussions about substances people do or don't want to consume is individualized and it's this i guess maybe what we would think of as a liberal model of people are free agents and they make decisions and then they have to live with the consequences of decision mm-hmm. and, and you know maybe the only true bit of that is the last bit <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously like those of us on the left you know don't want to think about things that way and we want to historicize we want to think about obviously there's human agency but in what way is it impacted or shaped by the structures that we all kind of have to live within so with that in mind, with relation to alcohol, how, how how can we start thinking about market forces shaping this? So we have this crisis. How have the means of producing and selling alcohol changed over the last years or decades in ways that have led to this crisis? Like in the book, you write about the ways in which the industry has become increasingly monopolized and large corporations have agreed to a kind of co-respective attitude. Could you talk a little bit about that and how the what material conditions have produced this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think um, understandably, when people uh, and especially progressives or leftists think of alcohol, they they do think of very small scale production because a lot of people um, enjoy so called craft um, beer, which which is often independent, uh, often local. Uh, you know, there's, there's all these sorts of things. And, you know, in a lot of the world, this sort of, uh, you know, petty production, small scale production is still uh, very ubiquitous. Like throughout Africa, there's there's a lot of alcohol, which is um, produced both, you know, they call it artisanally or illicitly um, or or not. Um, uh, that is like well within the household. And, you know, historically, um, going back uh, hundreds of years, that that is, you know, indeed how a lot of alcohol was produced. It was it was part of, you know, for agricultural, um, you know, uh, families um, and households like this. This was just like this was part of, um, you know, daily life was was uh, brewing beer or or whatnot. And sort of the, the well, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that I, I think there's a bit of projection of of how we um, enjoy alcohol, uh, you know, and, and and think of it as sort of this very small scale, um, you know, interaction or 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 industry or whatnot um, to the industry at large. Uh, and you know, I, I sympathize with that, and, and I understand that. But frankly, it's just it's not the political economy of alcohol in the world. Um, so I, I, you know, I term this. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like a callback to the 90s or 2000s when this was like more popular, but like this idea of like big alcohol, right? Um, so you, you've you got these um, very, very large multinational companies uh, all headquartered in, in Europe uh, or the US or Canada uh, or al- almost entirely, uh, which control a massive proportion, um, especially of the beer and the spirits. Wine is less concentrated for different reasons, um, but uh, beer and spirits especially are, are very... 
um, concentrated in like 10 or a dozen massive companies. Um, and so like for beer, you know, we're talking like AB and Bev, we're talking Heineken, uh, Molson Coors, uh, or in spirits, we're talking, you know, Diageo or, um, or uh, Bacardi, uh, these sorts of companies. And they, they have increasingly amalgamated like a massive, uh, truly massive share of, of the industry. And like this, the, you know, this um, concentration and uh, centralization of capital has been underway for, for quite some time. Um, like since sort of early 20th century after prohibition, um, where it was only, at least in the context of the US, it was only the larger companies that could sort of make it through. Um, and so in the wake of that, there were various waves of um, uh, accumulation, but especially since the 80s and 90s, we've seen these companies just get absolutely um, spectacularly massive, especially AB InBev. I kind of trace how they have um, just continued to gobble up like you know, really, really large companies um, in order to become what they are today. And for the most part, regulators may order, um, you know, some assets to be um, sold off or whatever to maintain some illusion of competitiveness, but it really is is not um, not that significant. So, so we've got these like really tremendously large producers. Um, but I also argue that, you know, big alcohol, depending on the country that we're talking about, also includes the distributors um, in the U.S. especially because they have this three-tier um, system after prohibition, um, but also retailers, you know, in countries such as the U.K. or U.S. where uh, alcohol can be sold in grocery stores. You know, uh, grocery stores are like an important sort of faction of big alcohol. Um, they're not producing it, but they are definitely benefiting from the ability to to sell it. And so, so you, you know, or you've got just huge chains of, um, of retailers or of course, uh, bars and restaurants and these sorts of things. Right. So I really want to like anchor the analysis, um, of the book and just of these conversations more broadly in, in that reality. Um, and it, it, it is, you know, it's, it's tough to grapple with because the, the places that we go, that we interact with are, are probably not that, but the, the vast, the vast, vast majority, um, of the alcohol that is produced, sold, consumed is coming from these um, gigantic uh, companies. And so um, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, uh, I think the, the left has like a really strong analysis of, of a lot of these sort of monopoly capitals in the world. So we think of like Walmart, Amazon, Apple, you know, Tesla, like we, we, we know the names of their CEOs. We detest them. We, you know, talk about them constantly in very critical terms, but I think um, alcohol does not get, thought about or talked about as much because people have like a very direct relationship with it, right? Like it's really part of cultural and social identity. Um, and so it just hasn't been interrogated at the same level, but I, I really do think it needs to be thought about in such terms because that is how the industry thinks about it. Uh, I guess I didn't get to the co-respective point, but I'll, I'll just say like Barrett and Sweezy wrote this book called Monopoly Capital uh, in the 60s. And, and one of the arguments that they made was that we've moved from this era of free competition into this era of monopoly capital in which these very large multinationals um, have established effectively control over these entire industries. And one of the key parts of that uh, that they argue is that these companies, obviously, they're in competition with each other. But they have what they term a co-respective relationship with each other, uh, where they will not do, um, they will not sabotage each other through, um, but you know, like race to the bottom pricing, where they will um, sort of have this uh, official or unofficial agreement to um, to keep prices at a level that is profitable for all of them. And of course, there's mergers and acquisitions, and there's a lot of um, 
bad blood between them. But at the same time, I think they they all recognize that they benefit from each other's um, power, right? And you can see that especially through the shared lobby groups and the way that they will um, work together to really fight for um, policies and regulations and those sorts of things which benefit them all. Yeah, I guess the, probably the simplest way to think of it is that they recognize a shared class interest. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think what's good about recognizing that is that regardless of how you feel about alcohol say you were listening and you're kind of mortified at the idea that the left should in any way encourage people to drink less i know fair enough you know some people love drinking and so be it but and actually i don't think that's necessarily the argument we should be making but i think most people will think they will hear about these corporations and unless they're a brand name like heineken i would imagine a lot of people aren't familiar with them i wasn't familiar with them before i read your book yeah definitely and on a certain level, they will think, hmm, that's, you know, maybe it's not that great. For sure. <laughs> they are making all the decisions about alcohol. You know, maybe there should be some kind of counter hegemonic force there that has some impact other than just these monopolies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll just add about that is that, um, you know, I, I started by talking about people's understandable um, like of craft beer, especially, or, or craft drinks. Um, but just, I'll, I'll just say like very briefly that, in uh, the last decade uh, or so, especially, there has been like an incredibly concerted effort by big alcohol to to either buy off um, these really popular um, breweries uh, or distilleries or whatnot, or basically to replicate um, their products uh, to to really push for it. So, for example, like Goose Island in Chicago um, was bought up by ABM Bev, and it was like this really uh, really intense moment for like uh, the craft beer industry. Um, in terms of just like reflecting on what that what that means. Um, so it's kind of just become slotted in as another piece of the portfolio uh, in which, you know, these giant companies can can profit off of it. And in the US, at least, a lot of these craft beer producers that started off as genuinely independent, small, you know, those sorts of things have now become some of the biggest producers in the country. Um, so like Boston Beer, um, Youngling, uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, you know, all these sorts of companies have become like real heavyweights. And not only are they, do they have like a significant market share, but they themselves are like engaging in markets uh, or mergers and acquisitions and these sorts of things. So like, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not arguing for anyone to disown like their local craft beer producer. It's more, it's more just to be like attentive to the dynamics of the political economy of alcohol and to realize that Things have changed a lot, you know, over the past century and even in the past couple of decades. That's that's basically like the the, the thesis. <laughs> yeah. And I guess we'll get more onto this later, maybe in more specifics. But do you think that there's a, a deeper shift in people's day to day lives, their relationship to the material conditions of their life, how long they work, how stressful their work is, how little they're paid? do you how, how do we think about those changing conditions in relation to people's growing attachment to drinking mm-hmm. alcohol yeah it's it's a really important question and I, I think this is sort of the i don't want to call it knee-jerk because it's legitimate it's 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 the response that a lot of people will have to this sort of argument it's like people's lives are shit <laughs> like uh <laughs> yeah. working incredibly exploited alienating jobs uh you know any any public good is being privatized um climate change covid's uh evictions etc like it just the list goes on and on and um and i think that's a really important 
uh, starting point for any of these conversations. Obviously mentioning before, like, you know, racism and colonization and all these sorts of things. But what I would argue is that it's it's not enough to um, stop there. My argument is that alcohol companies know that alcohol is one of the few things that people can afford, that people can resort to, and that they will exploit and leverage um, people's increasing alienation and frustrations and lack of alternatives and all these things for their own profits. Um, And that should be enraging for us, I think. Again, that's not to say that alcohol should not be a substance that people are allowed to use for self-medication or for any other reason. But given what we know about the health and social impacts, um, and given what we know about how the industry itself has completely um, undermined and worked to displace any responsibility for for those sort of outcomes, um, that should be really um, enraging to us for, for a lot of different reasons. And we'll talk about later, like the conversation also doesn't stop there. It's not like, oh, we just need to regulate um, alcohol better. And that's the end of the story. Like, uh, I argue that we need to, you know, degrow alcohol and, uh, you know, big alcohol is power, but we also need to regrow like so many other different things to actually allow people to live fulfilled, um, pleasurable lives. Right. Um, and, and we can, we can unpack that a bit, bit more later. Um, but I, I do think that that is where sort of the the purely public health um, argument kind of uh, doesn't necessarily resonate with a lot of people um, is that they will just hear that you're, you're taking away this, like well, there's one thing that I am using to, to get by like uh, and that's, I think where the, the left position really has to be um, that we're going to reintroduce or that we're going to fight for all these different things that actively make people's lives better and, and provide alternatives um, to this being the only way that uh, people get by. Yeah. We should definitely come back to that. I'm thinking, one of the most direct parallels is with the tobacco industry. People have a similarly direct relationship with the pleasure of smoking as they do the pleasure mm-hmm. of drinking, as well as mm-hmm. the downsides and the health impacts of those things. And yet, they hold a very different place, I think, both culturally and uh, like legislatively. Mm-hmm. Most people know about the way in which tobacco industry lobbyists have shaped policy in a much more like hands-on way. Um, but people don't make any sort of generalizations, but I think people don't necessarily see alcohol in the alcohol industry in the same way. How, how has the alcohol industry avoided scrutiny in such a kind of efficient way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, part of it is related to, again, like the, the longevity in the history um, of alcohol. And so like, there's, there's definitely this, this narrative that, this is something that people have used and enjoyed for thousands of years. Um, and therefore what is happening today is just like the same as it's, it's always been. Right. But I, I would just start by arguing that because of this like centralization and concentration of capital and like, and the way that the, that the industry is constantly expanding into new frontiers to create new profits um, and downplay all the various health outcomes means that we're de- dealing with a very different scale um, and intensity of, of this as a public health Issue. So the the tobacco question is really interesting because the alcohol industry has they watched and they 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 learned a great deal from what happened with tobacco uh, and how it got regulated very very intensely through like a global binding treaty. The treaty is has huge holes in it or whatever, but but nevertheless, like there were these huge master settlements and um, various restrictions on on many different things. Um, and so, uh, you know, the alcohol industry learned a great deal from that. One of the things I think that they've really come out of this with is um, 
is really pushing the strategically ambiguous is how it's been called um, line of drinking responsibly or moderate drinking. Um, so it's it's created this this um, difficult to understand intentionally so idea of what it means to relate to alcohol uh, in in a lower risk way or whatnot. Um, and so we've we've even seen that in you know the the lobby groups in Canada in response to these new lower drinking guidelines. That's been almost like the textbook the textbook response is that. Uh, you know, we oppose the cancer warning labels. We would just encourage our our, uh, our customers to drink responsibly or, or to drink in moderation or whatever. Um, you know, I, I won't get into that now, but like part of it is obviously that the people don't really know what that means. Like that, that could mean any number of things, any number of people. And the industry knows that. But I, I would argue that they they have learned how to not necessarily there there are some factions which will still reject um the the health effects outright but more of them will will be like you know we we accept this um but we are going to um you know as as quietly as possible like push against regulations and just really emphasize that this is a relation that an individual has with with their drink or whatever so i think that's been a big sort of outcome of of what's happened with tobacco like alcohol is is the only psychoactive drug or the only major psychoactive drug in the world that doesn't have a global binding treaty um uh like you know basically every other drug does um and so this means that um it means a lot of different things but one of the things it means is that um countries do not really have much um synchronicity um when it comes to to policies and regulations and these sorts of things the example i often give is um even the very definition of what a standard drink is um, which is how low risk drinking guidelines are calculated and whatnot. Um, but you know, standard drinks vary um and are calculated or established based on different histories and cultures and all those sorts of things. But it, it makes you know comparing, say, the UK's um guidelines to Canada's even like very difficult. Like in 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 the in the wake of the new guidelines, there's been like efforts by alcohol public health organizations being like, we have to like translate this for our UK viewers, like so that you can actually understand what's going on, right? So, so like um, the industry, by being able to to really rebuff and to keep regulations voluntary um, and this sort of idea of industry self-regulation, they've been able to really resist any attempt at creating sort of like a global um, treaty, even this idea of like um, a global strategy, which is like weaker than than a, a binding treaty by a great deal, um, was really picked apart by um, alcohol lobby groups like a, a year or so ago. Um, and so they're very reactive to like any other uh, any attempts to talk about this at a global level, which, again, I think is something that has been learned from tobacco because they know how severe those impacts have been to to the industry. Yeah. And the last, the last thing I'll say is that there are like, I mean, it's shifting a little bit, but there there is an intersection between tobacco and um, alcohol at a at a board level. Like there's a number of executives um, on prominent companies who come out of tobacco. Uh, and there's also intersecting assets where like uh, alcohol companies will own shares of of tobacco companies and vice versa. So like that's that's less of an important point, but I do do think it's still relevant to how we think of these as as parallel industries and and histories. Mm. Yeah, I'm also thinking there about this question of why we make choices, why we consume certain things, why we desire certain things, and you know, like it's a very tricky question, and I, I suppose one story that gets told about regulation of tobacco or alcohol is that we have these unmediated experiences with commodities 
and then people are arguing for the state to then come in and mediate them. And maybe a kind of libertarian or liberal argument is that we don't like that. And it and it naturalizes what's already happening because of course our relationships to all these commodities are already mediated by the state. But it's a state that's been captured by corporate interests already and it's naturalized. So I think a good thing to do would be to denaturalize that mediation. So what are some of the ways in which the state already mediates, supports, and basically makes possible the existence of beer alcohol? Again, like one of the things that that stuck with me from your book that I've got in my notes here is that a, a study suggesting that governments pay about 80 cents per drink in various health and social costs, but only receive an average of 21 cents per drink in taxes. I mean, that to me makes very clear the way in which the state is paying for the accumulation of capital by a corporate body or corporate bodies, I should say. Yeah, definitely. I, I really like the framing of that question because it actually reminds me of how neoliberalism gets thought about more generally. Like the, the very basic caricatured version is just like that neoliberalism is like the, the withdrawal of the state. And that that is true in, in some respects. But I think others have successfully argued that it's it's really about like the reconfiguration of the state to um, to facilitate, um, you know, the restoration of class power, as Harvey puts it, um, or like these new rounds of accumulation by disposition and and, and whatnot. Um, so, so like it, it kind kind of reminds um, uh, me me of that in in some respects. Um, yeah. So, so th- this will vary a lot, you know, depending on the country that, that we're talking about. Um, but I I think one of the key things is is not implementing and enforcing the same level of regulations as we would expect on a lot of other products. Like um, at a most basic level, like we're talking about just basic uh, nutritional facts. So like in a lot of places, calories, carbs, sugars, that sort of thing um, are not mandated. Um, So Health Canada here uh, says that's because they they don't want alcohol to be conceived of as, as, you know, um, part of a a, a diet or or whatever. Um, But we know that like literally every other product available um, on shelves is is required to have that. So, so I I think that that's, that's a a very um, sort of subtle, but I think revealing way um, that that the, that many states sort of have this exemption. There's also like the warning label aspect, you know, where we, which is like a big conversation in Canada at the moment where tobacco has um, warning labels. Um, So cannabis is now legal in Canada, which is great in some respects, not so great in others, which we can get to later in terms of how it's been legalized. But uh, again, a revealing part of that is that you buy any cannabis product or le- legal cannabis product, and it's uh, it's in a very specific type of packaging. It's plain packaging. It's got nutritional information. It's got warning labels. Um, it's got like everything, uh, even like in the um, in the in the beverage or like in cannabis beverages or whatever. There's like a childproof lock on top, basically, which is like incredibly hard to pop <laughs> off or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's like another example in conjunction with sort of like the basic nutritional facts. Like the the, the state requires this of every other um, commodity, uh, and and they have this like maintained exemption for. For alcohol, so so there's there's that, um, you know, there's things there's more like boring um, policy things like excise taxes and 
um, trade agreements and these sorts of things, like in the US at least, um, the excise tax on alcohol has been suppressed for, at like the both state and federal level, has been suppressed for, for years and years. And so what that has meant is um, compared to people's income, even in these times of like dire inflation and all the rest, alcohol has got relatively cheaper than it was you know, years or decades ago. Um, and so pricing is like a complex thing in itself, but we we do know from like many studies that um that the higher a price alcohol or another commodity is, the um the lower the consumption rate is, right? And so like this is a way of sort of artificially subsidizing uh alcohol's um ubiquity in consumption in society is by like artificially keeping these taxes low, especially and this is where the public health argument comes in. Um and it's it's a delicate thing because if it's the only if pricing is the only mechanism at play then it can become very despised understandably um and and all the rest but i i do think it it speaks to to how it has been protected from those sort of, of measures um but like you say there's there's conversations and there's studies being done around what what's been termed like the alcohol deficit um in terms of the healthcare expenditures um, that the state pays uh, versus how much is actually brought in by the excise tax. And uh, in most or all of the studies I've seen, it's, it's wildly disproportionate in terms of the state paying far more than it gets in um, from these revenues. And so that's uh, that's healthcare costs in terms of like primary care, but also emergency care, right? Because if if this isn't addressed soon enough, people are going to show up in, in hospitals and ERs uh, with very, very like acute um, uh, crisis situations, right? And so, so all of that is internalized uh, by the state. And there's there's uh, lots of reasons why this might be the case. Um, you know, part of it's the history, part of it's the culture, the employment is really big, um, these sorts of things. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, uh, even just from a popularity point of view, a government doesn't want to be seen as the one that is cracking down on 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 alcohol. So there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors motivating this, but I think it it is important to to think about this as a very significant subsidy um, to alcohol companies. The same way that we think of the fossil fuel subsidies and the way that um, that has been incentivized in in a lot of producer countries um, is that like it really is because of the capitalist states um, really pushing this and cultivating this that has been able to to maintain its prominence yeah and just to pick up there on the question of things like the alcohol deficit and the cost of caring for the health outcomes so often that is uh taken up by people on the right people in the center as an argument to say some people are undeserving of care right right you know, if yeah. you if you are a quote-unquote problem drinker if you drink too much or if you have a drink you know you're you're leeching off of the state and uh, you know me as you know i know you are totally not interested in that argument everyone's sure. deserving of care if you yeah. want to drink a lot and make yourself unwell i think you should have the freedom to make that decision yeah. but if we start to think about who is making lots of money off of mm -hmm. those situations mm -hmm. i think it becomes a much more helpful way to think about what's going on yeah yeah and 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 just just to echo that point very briefly that that has been a concern that's been brought up with these new guidelines in canada that i've seen is like some of it, some of the, a lot of the critique is in bad faith, but I think some of it's in good faith where people will be like, you know, for people who have had like really negative experiences with doctors who have shamed them for diet, for weight, for 
um, you know, through medical racism, through any number of things, that this could be conceived of as another tool for people to be shamed, to be stigmatized, um, but also in some situations to actually like bear the the financial cost of of these outcomes, like in places like the U.S. where healthcare is privatized through insurance and whatnot. So I, I think that's like that's a very legitimate um, concern. Um, my my response to that in the context of something like the guidelines. Again, is that like that's not the argument that I'm interested in yeah. in pursuing. It's rather like we need to we need to grapple with the material facts, the material impacts of alcohol. And it's it's following that that we fight for policy that is just and like, for example, that ensures universal health care, that ensures alcohol harm reduction programs um, that aren't just you know abstinence based or these sorts of things. But like, but like it doesn't help anyone aside from the alcohol industry itself to pretend that these health impacts don't exist, you know, in the interest of deferring stigmatization or whatever. Um, because as we know, like stigmatization is, as we talked about before, is already happening in prisons and detention centers and all these sorts of things, right? Like uh, it's just happening in a way which isn't being analyzed in a coherent political way in, in my perspective. Yeah, of course. And I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent to kind of yeah, make do a it. comparison. But <laughs> I remember really vividly in the UK during lockdown, People weren't commuting, so people weren't going to like sandwich shops and like getting their lunch from like different places. And there was this huge panic that the economy was going to collapse because people weren't buying the sandwiches. For years now in the UK, we've had a discourse that says if you're in your 20s or 30s and you're going to work and you can't afford a house, you know, stop buying your Starbucks, stop buying your sandwiches on your lunch, you know, stop getting your smashed avocado on toast. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, the second people stop doing that, a huge section of the economy begins to collapse. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I bring it up, because it's the same thing as you make the point in the book with problem drinkers, you can shame and you can, um, you know, patronize people who drink to a degree that it causes health problems but the fact of the matter is that industry needs that to happen and yeah. there's huge amounts of money invested in making sure that happens making sure that continues to happen and, and making sure that drinkers or people that might not be drinkers are encouraged to drink in in various different ways and a phrase used in the book that i thought was really helpful um i'm going to read it back to you which can be a bit wooden but i think it's really helpful but you say alcohol consumption is being very actively increased by big alcohol by dialectically integrating and shaping desires to maximum returns. And the thing that it, I think is really key there is this phrase of dialectically integrating and shaping desires to maximum returns. Could you unpick that phrase a little bit and explain what you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Um, firstly, just to build on that point that you just made about sort of the the lockdown and whatnot, there was there was a there was a study in the UK uh, a couple of years ago that found that if um, all drinkers, oh sorry, this was in Britain, if if all drinkers in Britain used alcohol below the recommended guidelines, that industry revenues would drop by thirty eight percent or thirteen billion pounds a year, um, yeah. and and that's that's at guidelines which these new Canadian ones have suggested may actually be too high. Um, the the dialectical integration of our desires by industry, I think, is is I I would say is one of like the the main leading points of of the book. And for starters, like it it it's really drawing on you know Mark Fisher's work and capitalist realism and that sort of thing to to think about how it's um it's not 
and and I, I think that, again, this is people's maybe go go to response to just hearing this argument at a very basic level is it's like it it seems like oh you've got like big alcohol this monopoly capital which is just like imposing alcohol upon people and yeah and we, we <laughs> and the, this this guy is making the claim that like we don't want it it's just basically being like forced down our throats. But I, I I don't think well a that's not what I'm arguing but b I think it like it underestimates the level of sophistication of these companies because you know alcohol has been around for forever and 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 whatnot but these companies excel at identifying and creating new trends um, which basically not only recognize but anticipate um, people's um, desires in a very like interactive way and so one example that I kind of emphasizes uh, i'm not sure how big it is in the uk but at least in north america this this trend of hard seltzers is like massive or you know um you know uh white claw uh or truly or all these different brands that are getting uh into it and and the reason i bring that up is because it uh attends to especially young people's concerns about the the health impacts of alcohol so you'll notice actually on a lot of hard seltzer um, packaging or advertising that's unlike beer, the nutritional information uh, is actually really stressed. And so it'll be like only, you know, zero or two grams of whatever, um, or that sort of thing. And so like it really is trying to appeal to people's, um, you know, sense of trying to have like a healthier lifestyle or or these sorts of things. And um, because of that, and because of other reasons, like it tastes good, <laughs> obviously it's packaged <laughs> yeah. well, um, it's exploded in popularity, right? Uh, and it's it's become this like very, um, you know, sort of memified, uh, social media friendly um, thing. And so that's an instance where like, I don't think that it was created in a boardroom necessarily, although, you know, some of these things certainly are. Um, but I, I think it was rather focus grouping and marketers and people just like um, very attuned to trends um, and being able to really anticipate it. So like another example of this is the use of sports sponsorships, um, which have which have been like a long established thing um, with alcohol. Um, it's become like more, more criticized in, in recent years or whatnot. But that's that's a huge thing, right? Like, so the NFL only like allowed a spirit sponsorship um, a couple of years ago. Um, I think Diageo is now like the official spirit sponsor of the NFL. Budweiser did its whole like marketing campaign with with Messi. Um, there's there's just or like rugby matches, soccer matches, like it's everywhere, right? And and obviously that's like a it's just at, at a basic level a, a huge opportunity for for people to see it. But I think there's a there's quite an insidious association being made there too around athleticism you know um playing sports and having alcohol as part of like this healthy lifestyle so so i think those are sort of two examples two related examples that i think speak to the way that industry is very attuned to what is happening with with trends and they're trying to not only um create you know new trends and anticipate new trends but just like really integrate them in a, in a highly profitable way. Um, and as it turns out, like these hard seltzers are arguably more profitable to produce than, than beer, uh, just based on like ingredients, but that's sort of a, a side issue. Um, so I, I don't know if that kind of gets it at what you were. Yeah. No. And you explained really well that kind of it is reductive to say no one wants alcohol and then these evil corporations come and make a drink. It's like, yeah. no, that's not, that's not the point, but it, but it is also the point that if, people's attachment to alcohol was so transcendent, so natural, so inbuilt. Why do corporations need to invest all this money in making sure mm -hmm. that it's such a central part of 
the media we consume, the, you know, well, literally the commodities we consume. But um, yeah, and I was also thinking that actually there, maybe a good, this would be a good time to talk about other substances. Like you touched on the legalization of marijuana. There's obviously all these conversations happening about, usually through medical pathways and therapeutic uses, but legalizations of things like psychedelics, MDMA, ketamine, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about how that legalization's happened. There's a lot of discussions about how that legalization has continued to disenfranchise mm-hmm. demographics, racialized communities that yeah. were previously criminalized. But with regard to this idea of dialectically integrating and shaping desires for maximum returns, is that, you know, how how do you think that will shape the consumption and enjoyment of these other substances because you know if it works for alcohol and there's a profit motive involved in the production of marijuana or any of these things it's clearly going to be replicated um successfully definitely yeah and and we've seen this play out since canada's legalization of cannabis to some extent like it's still it's compared to alcohol it's still like a far far smaller industry with considerably less uh public health impact so i don't want to be coming across as like a um reefer madness type person but um but like but but we we have seen some of these similar things play out with the centralization and concentration of of capital within the cannabis sector there's been enormous consolidation um and like a handful of companies are really starting to come out on top and this is causing you know layoffs for workers um it's causing like just like a great deal of of upheaval, and so I, I actually start the book by talking about like the war on drugs, and I term it this like global genocide, and you know, and how like the only pathway out of this is the legalization and regulation of criminalized drugs. But I, I follow that, and and it kind of it kind of brackets the entire book is is that we need to learn from the public health catastrophe of alcohol in terms of going forward to legalizing and regulating um these other drugs um and again this isn't to to try to draw like a one-to-one uh equation with with the public health impacts of alcohol because as we've talked about they are u- unique in some respects and, and really significant and, and not as present in other substances although that's not to say that you know other substances don't have their own issues but i think um in learning from what's happened uh and continuing to happen with alcohol uh legalization regulation or legalization and regulation of of these other drugs should happen through public ownership and and control right and it's re- it's not like a silver bullet because you know there are public retailers in in canada of alcohol that certainly have started to adopt like a very uh, market driven ethos in terms of like their marketing and, and advertising and whatnot um, but I think ideally these substances should be made available in a legal and regulated form, but um, with as much of the profit motive removed as possible. Because as so long as that you know, as so long as this has been produced um, for profit, um, which again, like the capitalist doesn't care about the use value, they don't care about the relaxation and sociability and self medication um, of it. They care about the the exchange value. They care about how much um, surplus value and, and eventually profit they can uh, extract from it. That's that's the only reason that any of these products exist. Um, re- you know, regardless of our own individual relationship with them. And so, um, for, you know, these, these other substances such as cannabis, MDA, MDMA, mushrooms, um, many other things, um, should be made available to people in a form, which is not going to kill them. All drugs should be, because we've got this like rampant drug poisoning crisis in, in Canada, which is just like slaughtering people because the, the supply is completely toxic. It's completely contaminated. Right. But the concern is, 
that we we have to ensure that this is not done in a way which replicates the disaster of alcohol. Um, and I, and like I think that's just like kind of a basic socialist or leftist demand is that we want this to be decommodified. We want this to be public. We want this to be socialized. Um, we want this to maximize pleasure and benefit and minimize or reduce harm. Like that just seems like a very sort of basic um, demand from from my perspective. But it really, again, it really does require grappling with the realities of alcohol and what what is happening with alcohol um and, and again maybe we'll touch on it in a second but like i i just want to like emphasize that while all these public health measures are like coming in for alcohol in in the context of canada or the uk or whatnot um the industry is rapidly spreading to like i give the example of vietnam but also sub-Saharan Africa, um, I mean, all over the world, right? Um, and these are places which do not have healthcare infrastructure or quality healthcare infrastructure. They're, they're not places that have strong alcohol regulations to the point that the alcohol industry has been found to actually write draft regulations, right? Um, and so this is like a, a huge concern in itself. And so whether we're talking about alcohol, whether we're talking about currently criminalized drugs, I think that the that the demand has to be not only at a national or continental level, it really has to be like the, these are global demands because, like, especially in the case of criminalized drugs, like we're we're talking about coca from Colombia, we're talking about poppies from Afghanistan, we're talking about um, you know like the the drug wars in Mexico City or Philippines or, or wherever, right? Like this is a, a, a intrinsically global problem. So I, I just wanted to stress that as what sort of like transformation and and justice would look like because. Uh, we we just we can't like reduce it to the level of Canada or the UK or wherever. Yeah, of course, and I think it's good to integrate as well into a broader set of demands about substances generally, and a general demand that substances that alter your consciousness and experience should be available, and you should be allowed to use them. Definitely. At the same time, you should be allowed, encouraged, and supported to receive all kinds of treatment. So yes, yeah, you know yeah. if you. If you know, and if you do them together, I think it's a much easier thing. Like, you know, you it's not a kind of you know like prohibitionist. No, no, it's like no, you should have access to all of these things. And at the minute, you're not getting access to all these things. You're just getting access to a kind of really predatory version of substance distribution throughout the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think people's instinct is is to think um, of like AA uh, as 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 the sort of the 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 response which has been advanced, which is abstinence-based it's uh peer support like some people do have good experiences with it but like from the studies i've seen the efficacy is like not there and like a lot of people don't want to quit entirely right like they they just they want to like they want to figure out what a lower risk consumption looks like um and and that really needs to be promoted through like public health care uh and through like very much harm reduction approaches is it's like it's not about if you want to quit that's great you can quit but but it's about like just helping people to reduce their risk, which also means making other substances available, right? Like there's this one study of a managed alcohol program in Canada where where people were given the option to use managed alcohol program is this like incredible harm reduction approach where like it's it's mostly people who are unhoused or street involved and have some sort of like dependency issues. And instead of 
been forced to resort to um, non-beverage alcohol like mouthwash or antifreeze are given a regular um, dosage of of um, alcohol which is prescribed or, or whatnot um just as context um but uh but in in one study indicated that like if people are given the, the option of using cannabis for example that um people often tend towards that as well and so that in itself is a harm reduction approach right it's you know and again it's not to say that people need to stop using alcohol entirely it's just like giving people choice which <laughs> you know you, you brought up the, this idea of of choice or whatever but it's like that choice is so constrained it's like you can use alcohol with basically no informed um uh like no information at all or you can use criminalized drugs where you may be using a toxic uh supply and die right like th those are not to me those are not choices right so it's like it's about fighting for without <laughs> succumbing to sort of the neoliberal impulse it's about like actually giving people genuine choice Thank you for listening and thank you to James for such a wonderful conversation. Once again, if you'd like to support the podcast, make sure you head over to the website where you can sign up to donate £1 a month or you could give the show a five-star review or just share this episode with people you think might enjoy it. Thanks again. Thank <laughs> you.